Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy, Episode 5, The First World War. I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Joining me today, fellow professors in the Strategy Policy Department at the U.S. Naval War College. It is uh, Dr. Jim Holmes, Dr. David Stone, and Dr. John Maurer. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for being here. All right. Um, So I thought we'd start out with kind of a stage setter type question. Um, choices to go to war, reasons to go to war. Um, you know, the, the kind of the, the thing you learn about in grade school is, oh, well, it's, it was a system of alliances and the Archduke Franz Ferdinand that, uh, that drew everyone into, into World War I. But we kind of tend to push back on that in this course. We talk about proximate and underlying causes of the war and a lot of, a lot of crises, crises in the Balkans, Balkan Wars preceded this in the, in the decade preceding 1914. So why this? Why why nineteen fourteen? Why the major flare? Why the world war of this? Dave, I'd like to start with you on this one. Sure. So I'll, I'll take a position that um, the assassination of the Archduke um, is what triggered this war, but it could have just as easily been something else. Um, as you alluded to, there are the Balkan Wars. There are two Balkan Wars in the in the couple of years before World War One. And it, you could imagine similar things that those, if those wars had spun out of control, you would have had a similar problem. Um, I tend to look at this war as being one of um, power imbalances over the long term. Um, there's a degree to which um, the British are concerned about a German threat. Um, the Kaiser uh, seems to be aiming at a worldwide empire that could only come at the expense of the British. Uh, the Germans themselves are worried about rising Russian power. Um, they see Russia putting in a railroad system that will enable Russia to use its manpower. They see a, uh, an existential threat on their eastern border. Uh, And the Austro-Hungarian Empire sees itself as facing existential threats from nationalism. So I see this primarily as long-term power imbalances and long-term structural problems that are precipitated by this particular assassination, but not necessarily, it doesn't make sense to think of the assassination as the fundamental cause. So I'll lay that out as my position. Okay. Jim, we'll go to you for a response. Yeah, sure. I would just say that actually the question reminds me of something Robert Kaplan said in one of his many pieces a few years ago. I think he was I think he was actually talking about the Peloponnesian War, but uh, but I think it's a more general point. He said, I mean, he says as much as Dave just said, he, he says what causes a war is not the same thing as, as what says what starts a war. So, I mean, there, it's, it's, it, it always I used to fight fires in the Navy. It reminds me of the fire triangle that we use when we when we uh, fought fires or taught about firefighting, where you need fuel, air and heat. These are the make these are the, are the makings of a fire. But there still has to be something to start to uh, start to strike a spark to start the interaction among those three things and start the, and start the combustion process. So. It, it, so I think I, I would go along with that as well. The, the, the uh, I mean, the, 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 the Archduke, I mean, that's it's just sort of a, almost a side issue. But it just sets it just sets in motion a lot of other stuff uh, that's you know, a lot of other baggage. It also just it also just feels to me like the, the trinities and the triangles uh, among all the combatants they were just sort of resigned to it. 
And in fact, in fact, uh, the, since they talked themselves into believing it was a short war, the magnitude and the duration of the effort would be short. Therefore, therefore, you can go to war and accomplish your goals without uh, without all the horrendous sacrifice that we know uh, ended up happening. Mm. Every every sailor's got to know some damage control, right, Jim? That's the first thing you have to qualify when you step foot on a ship. Probably Marines too. Oh yeah, good deal, John. We'll go to you. I, I couldn't agree more with uh, with Jim and Dave uh, that there are larger structural forces here at work. Uh, in particular, uh, I would highlight that uh, you have a couple sick men of Europe and the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire and in Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary is going through what will amount to a succession crisis that even if Franz Ferdinand had uh, lived, there was going to be uh, uh, probably a constitutional question that had the potential to be violence. Uh, so the future of Austria-Hungary is is very much uh, in doubt. Uh, in fact, uh, in research that I did in the Vienna archives, Franz Ferdinand had, took a, a real interest in war plans for how to invade Hungary, because it was thought that uh, Hungary might try to uh, 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 secede, if you will, from Austria-Hungary. So uh, uh, there's a lot going on in Austria-Hungary, and this is uh, Germany's principal ally. So if Austria-Hungary falls apart, and it might have, I think the odds of it were low, but nonetheless, uh, if it falls apart, you have a big power vacuum there, and it's going to lead to a, a major war. And as alluded to, the Balkan Wars there show that that whole region in the Balkans, but also in the Middle East, uh, are open to um, uh, uh, future conflicts that are likely to expand and become larger. So the Middle East and Eastern Europe and the Balkans, problems there could end up engulfing Western Europe in war as well. It might not stay confined to the, uh, to the region. It could expand to include other countries. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned Austria-Hungary, John. That one of my one of my favorite, uh, you know, factoids from this war is uh, the Austro-Hungarians have to publish their operations orders in like twelve different twelve different languages to uh, <laughs> for their army. You know, because there are so many different nationalities. Yeah, the mobilization orders had to be published in sixteen different languages, um, and so what what you have is this multinational empire uh, that, and I've I've talked about how it could pull apart, but it's important to recognize too there are forces that are keeping Austria Hungary together as well. There's a great deal of loyalty to the Habsburg monarchy. Franz Josef, who was emperor from 1848, he would die in 1916. He was still on the throne in 1914. Uh, and uh, his successor, the uh, 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 it would have been Franz Ferdinand, but because Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, it was instead the Emperor Karl. And there was a great deal of loyalty to Emperor Karl in the last two years of the war. To a remarkable degree, uh, people rallied behind the emperor. Uh, so, and after all, uh, the Austro-Hungarian monarchy stayed in the war longer than the Tsarist monarchy. So there, there's still a lot of glue holding the Habsburg monarchy together, but but still there's a, a big question there about the Balkans and the Habsburg monarchy's future that has the potential for a larger war. 
Mm. You know, it's actually, we actually heard a distant echo just in the news just this week uh, out, of, out, of the, out of this question uh, that the Serbian, the Serbian government has accused NATO of uh, hypocrisy for citing territorial integrity as a, as a reason to keep uh, supporting Ukraine as it fights for its independence, pointing, uh, pointing back to 1914, <laughs> pointing back to 1914 and, and, and all of these things. Kind of, kind of an interesting one. Wow. There's a number of countries that want a piece of Austria-Hungary. The Romanians want to have Transylvania. Uh, the Serbs want to have Bosnia and create a greater uh, Serbia. And the Italians also want territories that, of Italian-speaking uh, peoples. So there's the potential there uh, for outside countries to want to intervene and cause trouble within the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. And Serbia, again, it's no accident that Serbia uh, this war begins as a conflict between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, because Serbia is the most aggressive irredentist state trying to grab territories from uh, the Habsburg monarchy. Mm. Where, the, where the carcass is, so that, that's where the eagles will gather. Mm. Well, I, yeah. that's, so you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Italy, John. That's actually one of my, um, my favorite points from Dave's uh, other lecture that he talks about, where uh, you know, the pushing back against the whole system of alliances argument that Italy is allied as part of the central powers, but it makes this conscious choice to say, well, actually, we want territory up in Terrest, so we're going to, you know, which is our Austrian-Hungarian ally, so we're going to not, not uh, you know, obey our alliance obligations here and uh, conveniently step out of this and then switch sides a year later, so. <laughs> but, yeah, Trieste is a nice place. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they got it back, so hey, you know. Maybe it worked. Maybe they were the smart ones in this war. Well, and, and this gets back to something that Dave mentioned, which is that while there's structural forces at work here, and John, you mentioned this too, the decisions are for war are choices. Leaders make choices given the circumstances that are there. They make choices and different choices could have averted the war that happened in 1914, even though it's likely that there's going to be a big systemic crack up at some point. Uh, uh, in 1914, war could have been averted again, a general war, if leaders had made some different choices there. Um, they didn't. So you have to talk about the choices that leaders make as well as the larger structural factors that are promoting conflict. So, uh, you know, segue to, a, uh, to, a, to another question that we, um, we tend to talk about in terms of, um, you know, centers of gravity. And we've got, we've got these uh, continental powers where their centers of gravity are their army. You know, the, the German army and the French army are just these two immobile forces kind of pushing against one another. And they fail to um, uh, outflank one another, results in deadlock. Um, the British try a, a peripheral strategy. They try to open up other fronts. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about this concept of opening up other fronts and uh, Clausewitz says it has to be exceptionally rewarding to do so. Jim, you kind of talked about this in your, in your lecture in terms of, you know, the, the Admiral Wiley's concept of cumulative operations, right, is a, is a peripheral strategy, a bunch of cumulative operations. Um, so I kind of wanted to talk, open up this concept of, of, of how the British Army or the, the, the British grand strategy fights the German army and, and can it really achieve any type of significant victory in, in, in a, uh, a continental power centers of gravity where, where it's their army, this peripheral strategy. Jim, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. 
Uh, well, yeah, that means uh, trying to trying to manage subdivision of your forces is obviously a very difficult thing. I'd say that's one reason you a lot of times you'll see you, you will see cumulative operations be with secondary forces. I mean, they're, 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 they're things that are not involved in the main sequential push. And I think and I think that's one way that's one way to look at. Uh, in fact, this came up in, during the Q and A on World War Two in the Pacific. Uh, student, a student asked about the about the British strategy of doing things around around the margins and and and, and trying to prepare the way for later later getting involved in a decisive sequential push. And I think I think that's the way to do, that's what that's the way to classify it, because because every 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 operation, the pattern of the war is going to have some sequential character, even if it's cumulative and vice versa. So, so so that's I mean I, that's one way to think about it. And I I also referred back to the to the Athenian campaign, the Athenian campaign of Pericles. But that was very much a cumulative uh, strategy. Trying, you're trying to win through cumulative uh, uh, maritime raiding around the periphery and so forth, hoping that the adversary will, will not have the beats to keep up the fight or the will to keep up the fight. So you, you, I think you see, and that's, uh, that seems to to find its way into British preferences, as, as Andrew Lambert shows in his uh, in his biography of Corbett, which is about the British way of war as Corbett would have liked it to have been. The, the, the navy with a, the navy with an, an expeditionary British army, which is basically an expanded Marine Corps doing doing stuff around the margins. So I think you I think you catch a, a, a real whiff of that in World War One, trying to change the pattern of the war by going to Gallipoli, doing other things around the margins. So it's, it's, a, it's just a different strategic menu. I think that the British uh, bring to the table just because of who they are. Dave, we'll go to you for a response. So uh, it's interesting that the three of us seem to be in, in violent agreement about almost everything we've talked about thus far. So sooner or later, we'll disagree about something. <laughs> I'll try I'm to ask that question. In addition to the British, I, I would point out that it, obviously the British with a naval tradition are, are thinking about expeditionary operations and peripheral operations. Um, but it's worth noting that the French and the Russians do similar things. Um, uh, one example would be the, the landings at Salonika in Greece, where the British and the French um, carry out a, a landing in Salonika and, and achieve nothing by it. Um, the Central Powers cost Salonika the world's largest open-air prison camp um, because the British <laughs> and the French put hundreds of thousands of troops into Greece who sit there for uh, until 1918. Um, even the Russians thought very seriously about amphibious operations in the Black Sea. Um, I, I need to write this up because I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, the British and the French try to land at the Dardanelles from south, and that campaign doesn't work. The Russians are actually considering the possibility of an amphibious landing against Istanbul from the north. Um, they can never quite put the ships together to make it work. They don't think they've got um, the, the, the sea lift to make it happen, but they explore it very clearly as an effort to try to break this deadlock that everyone's seeing. Um, now, the fronts in the Eastern Front are moving. They're not as rigid as the ones in the West, but in, in no case can either side in the East seem to achieve decision. And so the Russians are looking for ways to, to break the deadlock and achieve decision by peripheral operations too. So I just throw that in as something else to consider in terms of how so many of the parties in the war are trying to use peripheral operations as a way to um, find some mechanism to bring the war to a successful conclusion. Mm -hmm. Okay, John, thoughts on this one? Well, uh, from the British perspective, uh, the Dardanelles campaign is considered a real sideshow, despite the big effort that the British put into it, both in naval and ground forces. What the uh, Winston Churchill, uh, his first sea lord, uh, uh, Sir Jackie Fisher, Admiral Jackie Fisher, one of his top naval advisors, Admiral Arthur Wilson, all of them, what they wanted to do was to launch an offensive in the North Sea 
that would lead to a further offensive into the Baltic, where they would try to bring Russian troops as well as British troops to bear to land them on a Pomeranian coast 90 miles from Berlin. They kept talking about 90 miles from Berlin, that there's a beach there where they could land Russian and British troops. This would mean also bringing Denmark into the war on the side of uh, Britain uh, and Russia. And this is the theater that the, the top British admirals and Churchill uh, and Churchill's successor, Sir Arthur Balfour's first Lord of the Admiralty, they all wanted to do. There, one big problem is that the German surface fleet is a very powerful force and it's well protected with mines, torpedoes, coastal artillery, submarines. Uh, to get into the Baltic, you have to degrade that capability and that's very hard to do. And the top fleet commander, Sir John Jellicoe, the commander of Britain's Grand Fleet, he was opposed to these plans. So even though the top hierarchy, political and naval uniformed of the Admiralty wanted to undertake this big offensive in the North Sea, uh, the uh, top fleet commander said, this is not practical, then therefore we shouldn't do it. And he kept fighting back against it. And when you look at the correspondence between Churchill and Fisher and Jellicoe, uh, you just see Jellicoe does not want to do this. They, he doesn't want to do it at all. And he fights back uh, against it. And he's ultimately successful. He vetoes any major offensive in the North Sea. Mm. So, yeah, interesting points about the British way of war. So to, to pull on that thread just a little bit, um, you know, you mentioned Gallipoli, John, but, but Churchill is really going after the Ottoman Empire. There are at least four separate different campaigns that are uh, are tried against the Ottomans themselves and two are complete and utter abject failures. An entire British army is surrendered at Al-Kut in Iraq, you know, never sees repatriation because they're mostly Indian and colonial troops. Um, only by the end of the of the war does the offensive in Gaza and and somewhat of Lawrence's Arabia insurgency campaign do some things in, uh, uh, in what is today Saudi Arabia. So is this... Um, you know, is this peripheral strategy really a, a or is this, you know, cumulative operations as we talk about, Jim, is that really a, a viable uh, a strategy in, in, in every context? Jim, we'll start with you. Well, I mean, I would hesitate to, to say any to any particular strategy or, or approach is viable in every single context. So, so I guess, so I guess the answer is no. But, uh, but, but I mean, I think about what you're trying to do. The, the uh, witness, I mean, think about it. Think about the quintessential secondary campaign, or the or the, or the war by contingent that uh, Corbett describes. I mean, I, the, when you look at the overall pattern of the Napoleonic Wars, that looks like a cumulative operation around the periphery in Iberia, lands from, from uh, 1807, basically, to, basically to the end of the war. This is a this for Corbett is a quintessential way to do it. You can you can you, you can have a modest sized expeditionary force landed in a theater for which your adversary much fight must fight even if it doesn't want to. You can say you can support that uh, that expeditionary army from the sea, work with partisans and so on and so forth. So again, in the overall pattern of the Napoleonic Wars, which is in effect in effect a world war almost, that's a it looks like it looks like a sequential blow, but 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 it, but it feels very cumulative by doing things around the margins. So. That's, a, that, that's the kind of things that students should be looking looking for when they evaluate this this sort of this sort of uh, this sort of operation. So, I guess I, I so I guess, I guess the answer is yes. I think I think they're normally worth taking. But again, you've got to ab abide by Clausewitz's three R's: 
never undertake a secondary theater or a secondary line of operation unless it promises exceptional reward, unless unless you can do it at acceptable acceptable risk, which Clausewitz defines as meaning that you have decisive superiority in the in the primary theater, which is what matters most by definition. So, so again, when you're when you're trying to manage concentration and dispersal, you have to keep all those calculations in mind. If you're doing cumulative stuff. Can you can you spare it with that? Because it makes no strategic sense to to, to sacrifice what matters mo, mo, what matters most for for the sake of what matters not at all or matters much less. It's a trouble. This is a troublemaking uh, strategy that uh, that you're undertaking when you when you when you go and do cumulative things. And what was the third R, Jim? Risk, reward, and yeah, risk, reward, and resources. Basically, yeah. decisive resources, decisive superiority in resources is, is the standard that Clausewitz sets. He doesn't give us any any metrics, obviously, because that's that's it's more impressionistic than that. But uh, he's basically saying, don't do it unless you have a compelling reason and you can get away with it, and you're not sacrificing what matters most. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, <clears throat> Corbett's concept of the disposal force and 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 taking this, uh, you know. Uh, forced to go do things. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I discussed this in class and one of my international officers laughed and said, you know, this cumulative operation stuff is a neat concept, but it's completely predicated upon having the forces to be able to to do a cumulative operation. That's uh, absolutely, he's absolutely right. He or she's absolutely right. Yeah. You're talking about a smaller army or Navy, then it's, uh, you know, a great concept, but fails in practice, right? Uh, Dave, we'll go to you for a response. To this. Well, so I was, again, it seems like one of the dynamics here is that uh, you sort of, Jim and, and John will talk the naval angle and I'll go to the land angle. Um, so the, you mentioned the Ottomans and the abject failures of British peripheral operations against the Ottomans. One of the things I would take away from that is the way in which states have enormous staying power. So um, John at the very beginning mentioned how even the Austria-Hungary that seems like it's about to explode has these enormous resources um, that, that help it to stay together for a remarkably long time. And the Ottomans, who have been the sick man of Europe for 150 years, are fighting simultaneously in the Caucasus, in Mesopotamia, in Palestine, at the Dardanelles, um, with no industrial base to speak of, and yet managed to hold together for a remarkably long time. Um, and all the states put up with far more, they, they produce more, they mobilize more of their population, they find more financial resources than anyone expected before the war started. And so I think that's one of the things that helps us to understand why this war lasts so long and becomes so bloody is that modern states have these incredible resources that they can use to keep themselves going, even when it seems like there's no possible way that they can withstand these pressures. Um, so again, I, I, the Ottomans are a nice example of that as the kind of the weakest of the great powers, but I think you can see the same sort of phenomenon with all of them. Interesting. John, we'll, we'll go to you first. Both of I just want to piggyback on, on Dave's excellent point, which is that um, the Ottoman Empire ties down an enormous amount of troops on the part of the British uh, coming out of uh, uh, Egypt, uh, Allenby's campaign, an army there, uh, um, Maud's campaign after cut going up Mesopotamia, up the Tigris, Euphrates. Uh, Dave has already mentioned uh, Salonika and how British and French forces are there. When you look at the, the amount of resources being sent to uh, attack the Ottoman Empire, it, it's, it's substantial. Uh, and in fact, the British general staff uh, looked at this, the army leaders, Britain's army leaders, and said, this is uh, too many forces being sent off to this secondary theater. Uh, Sir Henry Wilson, who is the top operational planner and 
by the end of the war as the chief of the Imperial General Staff, his view is that every soldier, every round of ammunition should be on the Western Front because the Western Front is the main theater of war. The war is only going to be decided on the main theater of war where the enemy's main army is, the German army, and you can't expect to win this war in a secondary theater. A secondary theater produces secondary effects. The main theater is where the decision will come. And hence, uh, Allenby's forces, Maud's forces, uh, are, are all somehow a distraction from the main theater. Uh, again, that's a very brutal view uh, of, the, of, uh, of uh, strategy. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, if you're going to defeat Germany, you have to defeat the German army. And so you have to bring the, the, your power to bear against Germany. Uh, uh, and instead, Britain is bringing substantial power against the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire is, is in many ways, as Dave pointing out, is a valuable ally for Germany. Uh, uh, again, tying down British forces, but also Russian forces in the Caucasus as well. Mm. <clears throat> Yeah, interesting, interesting points. Well, since we started to talk about Germany here, let's turn the map around and, and uh, you know, talk about German options, uh, specifically at sea, since we're still dealing with the, you know, the sea power and the peripheral concept before we shift to, to land. Um, <clears throat> after 1914 and through 15, all the major powers are deadlocked, but Germany has other instruments of war and potentially other things that it could do with both its surface fleet and with its uh, with its U-boats. So it, yet it seems like there was a lack of creative thinking or maybe some political inhibitions that prevented them from, um, you know, using these instruments to achieve any type of effect uh, to influence decisions on land. Um, so you know, was there anything else that the Germans could have done in this strategic position, say around, you know, 1916-ish, uh, that, uh, you know, that, that might have achieved a better strategic effect? Um, Jim, we'll go ahead and start with you on this one. You know, one of my, one of my favorite works about sea power was uh, translated here at the Naval War College in 1929 by Admiral Wolfgang Wegener, who was, a, who was a, an admiral, a surface, surface fleet officer in the high seas fleet of Germany. And he, he, he wrote a scathing, wrote a scathing and very well-written book in which, he, in which he goes back and he examines this. And they, I mean, he, he spends a lot of time beating up on Germany because he simply says they didn't, didn't have a maritime culture needed to compete with Great Britain, which is, he said, he said, the, he said the Britons have, they have blue water flowing through their veins after all these years of, 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 uh, of, sea, of seafaring and, and, and empire. He, I mean, he, and he, he looks back and he, he suggests, and he offers a very interesting way, he, he offers a very interesting view of what sea power is. He suggests that he suggests that uh, he he, de he defines sea power in three terms. Like every theorist has a has a trinity or a triangle. It feels like his his trinity of sea power is the fleet, is the, which is the tactical factor, uh, strategic position, the geographic factor, going out and looking for favorable strategic positions. And but the, really the interesting one is what he calls strategic will to the sea. It's a concept taken from Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche's writings about the the will to power. Does the people have the will? That the will to power, the will to go to sea and, and, and compete uh, for, Ocean, for oceanic empire. So he, he suggested that Germany didn't really have a lot of options at sea. However, he he, he implied that what uh, that uh, Germany should have tried to outflank the, the British blockade, which was totally which was totally predictable. Britain, Britain lies across northwestern European powers, access to the to the high seas. And, and Germany probably was not going to be able to outflank that. Wegener so says the, the, trying to command the North Sea is like trying to command the Caspian Sea. Mm -hmm. 
why? <laughs> why are you going to build this big high seas fleet in order to try to command something you can't command? And there's no point in commanding anyway. So, but but in any event, he says, look, if we're going to try to do this again, if we're going to re rewind this and try to do to, to do something like, uh, and obviously the Germans do it again in World War II, he, he he says, look, we need to outflank this by by territorial conquest, north north to north to Norway and south to France, try to get naval bases that can outflank uh, Great Britain. So, I'm not sure exactly what a German war plan in World War One would have looked like that that had uh, that had taken forces off the Western Front to do these things. But nonetheless, if you're going to put sea power at the center of your strategy, you probably have to think about uh, doing that kind of thing, as, as Hitler's forces do in, in 1940 and 1941 with the invasion of Norway and with, the, with of course, the conquest of France. They do, they do outflank Great Britain at sea. They just didn't have the maritime assets to, to, really, to really make uh, put the serious hurt on, on Britain, except through submarine warfare. Hmm. Interesting. Dave, any thoughts on this one? I'm going to pass on that one. I, I, I would agree with what Jim said. Um, so I'm going to leave that off to, to John Maurer to see if he's got anything. Um, I, I'm going to uh, say that uh, Germany, with the fleet that it has and its geographical location and how it's also outbuilt by the British before the war, the British have a three to two superiority uh, in warships overall, and it only grows greater as the war goes on and becomes greater still once the US comes into the war. So for Germany, uh, it's unlikely that a more aggressive strategy use of the high seas fleet is going to result in anything but its destruction. Uh, so then you have to say, well, if the high seas fleet is destroyed, what does that do? Well, it leaves open options to the British. For example, I mentioned earlier the North Sea offensive and into the Baltic. You can't do that until you destroy the high seas fleet. So if it's destroyed because it's been more aggressively used in the North Sea, uh, you open up more options to Britain for a closer blockade uh, or, again, uh, offensive operations in the North Sea and the Baltic. So the high seas fleet actually plays uh, an important role. Whether it was wise to build it in the first place, that's another question. But once you have it and you're in the war, what it does is it closes off options for the British uh, they really can't do this offensive into the North Sea and into the Baltic. Uh, it prevents you from doing that. And also, uh, by sitting in port, uh, being a constant threat, it's amazing how much it ties down in British resources. The British have to uh, keep a big grand fleet uh, in the North Sea to keep it in check. And what you see during the war is that uh, uh, the British have to maintain a large number of destroyers around the Grand Fleet, destroyers that can't be used, for example, in convoys against submarines. Uh, also, it means the British can't do a close-in mining blockade of the German ports, which means that the German submarines now have an ability to get out into the North Atlantic and the waters around the United Kingdom. So the high seas fleet is what uh, a later generation, a Cold War generation, would call a competitive strategy, which is that uh, by its existence, it ties down a great deal of resources of the other side uh, and also closes off options to the other side. So I'm, I'm a mild defender, shall I say, of the German Zitzkrieg strategy for, uh, for its Navy, its high seas fleet, which is just sit in port and tie down a lot of British resources and close off British strategic options. Uh, and in that sense, uh, the, the fleet uh, had an important purpose uh, in, the, in the war. Mm. 
Interesting. Jim, we'll go to you for a response. Yeah, in that sense, uh, what John's talking about, I mean, that this is sort of a traditional understanding of what a fleet in being is by its existence and by and by, by camping out. You, you actually do, cut, you do you do tie down forces. So in that sense, Mahan, of course, championed that that uh, that definition. Corbett Cor was looking for a, a much more active vision of what a fleet in being is. It's always it's always on the lookout for a counterpunch. It's always it's, it's always looking for for the chance to counterstrike. With regard to competitive strategies, this is a—I mean, this is a concept that's come back into vogue over the last decade. We had a major conference here at the college in 2010. Put out a put out a, what I thought was a very nice uh, volume out of Stanford University Press about uh, competitive strategies. But yeah, it's again—it's a—it's about trying to steer a competition into an area in which you are not only better than your adversary, but you can compete at an affordable cost to yourself and an unaffordable cost to do to your adversary. So you compel your adversary to, to overinvest in, in certain capabilities because you've taken charge of the pattern of the, of, of the pattern of the conflict. So, I mean, so yeah, it's I, whenever I'm thinking about uh, doing secondary things, I mean, it, it's, it's not just about cause of talks about imposing costs directly, raising the magnitude and the duration of the effort to your adversary. But part of that part of that is also imposing opportunity costs. If Britain, if Britain can't detach destroyers to do stuff, to do stuff in the Mediterranean or wherever else it wants to do stuff, at that point, at that point, there is there is value to a to a high seas fleet that sits in port. And it, it does enough to keep the British interested. If they if, if they sort to you once in a while just to just to apply, they might do something. That that probably that probably does bog down resources that are then unavailable to the British leadership to do other worthwhile things. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned keeping the British in, in, uh, interested. You know, Jutland is an interesting way of keeping the British interested. And so they you know they try that sortie. They're doing restricted uh, submarine warfare with the U-boats, and there's this back and forth of you know. Uh, politically, uh, Bethman Holvig saying, well, let's not go to unrestricted. But then by, you know, later in the war now towards 17, they're, they're, they're getting desperate, right? Nothing's happening on land. And they just make the decision to go to unrestricted submarine warfare, which is in line with the whole, uh, as you were talking about, Mahan and Corbett theory of Guerrero de Course and, and trying to strangle your adversary through his commerce, but is, is you know, Either way, it's a it's a strategy of protraction, right? You're going for a slow win versus versus being able to do something, you know, that, that's really going to knock your your enemy out of the war. Um, should the Germans maybe have made these decisions sooner? It's it seems like it was a very piecemeal type process. Jim, we'll start with you on this one. Well, I mean, I guess the, in retrospect, the answer is obviously yes. That Germany doesn't build a submarine until 1906. I mean, that's very that's very late in the that's very late in the game. Everybody's, I mean, the, the Germany starts building the high seas fleet uh, as early as 1898, at least as far as putting the the, the legislation in place, uh, uh, authorizing it, authorizing the expenditure of money on it. So, so yeah, so, so yeah, they are certainly late latecomers to cumulative warfare. I think they. I mean, we know that uh, we know that the Kaiser was a huge fan, and also Admiral Tirpitz, the architect of the High Seas Fleet. These were big, big Mahanian uh, powers. The, the Kaiser claims that he tried to that he tried to memorize to memorize Mahan's book. That we, man, can you imagine that trying to memorize Mahan's book? Wow, I can't even imagine having it, having him stand there and read the read it to me in the lecture hall. Must like much less try to uh, try to uh, to actually memorize it. But I mean, Mahan, what is it? If you're a Mahanian power. And Mahan, by the way, in his memoir, he says foreign powers were more receptive to my works than my own than my own countrymen were. Japan was extremely receptive, and also Germany and Great Britain. So, if, if you're if you're Mahanian, what are you doing? You're thinking about capital ships. 
the and you're relegating uh, you're relegating relegating flotilla platforms like submarines, torpedo armed submarines. These are these are secondary these are secondary weapons of war for for you. You're probably and if you're probably you're probably going to put them uh, accord them a much less priority. And therefore, we're sort of wishing that Germany had seen what we know what we knew happened, even though they didn't, because they're because they're because they're they're, they're thinking in big ship terms, just like all the great powers were. Interesting. John, we'll uh, go to you for any thoughts on this one. Well, um, it, you have to remember the the technology here that's going on, which is that submarines um, submarines were uh, used uh, primarily for coastal defense. They had short range. They couldn't travel very far out to sea. And so they were more useful for what we would call an anti-axis aerial denial strategy one in the littorals defending your home waters. It's only on the eve of the First World War that the British, who are actually the leaders in the development of submarine technology, come up with longer range submarines. Uh, and all of a sudden, Germany sees this. And on the eve of war, Tirpitz starts to put money toward these long range submarines. So at the beginning of the war in 1914, Germany doesn't have uh, really the resources in the way of long range submarines, submarines that can range out off the coast of Ireland uh, to the west of the UK to where they can try to interdict by sinking ships. So uh, Germany doesn't have a large submarine force at the beginning of the war. And it's only as time goes by and they start putting a great deal of resources into the submarine force that they have a force that is viable to be able to do immense damage to British shipping. So there's a time factor there. Uh, Germany was slow to uh, developing the submarine force because submarines uh, uh, are actually uh, expensive, not as expensive as capital ships, but still there, uh, uh, um, when you look at a defense budget and you say, where do you wanna place your bets? Where do you wanna put forces? The, the submarine is a relatively expensive force to build up uh, and also to train up the crews. So Germany puts a big effort into it once the war is declared and builds up a larger submarine force. But you have to remember that this submarine campaign of unrestricted submarine warfare will only be successful if the British cooperate by not convoying ships. <laughs> so the Germans are counting on the British being inept and not convoying their ships. And initially in 1917, the British do cooperate <laughs> and uh, uh, with catastrophic <laughs> results uh, for shipping. Uh, again, it must be remembered that uh, the Germans sink 13 million tons of shipping by their submarines during the First World War. They do immense damage but not enough to be able to, to knock Britain out of the war and end the war, so long as Britain takes appropriate measures to defend trade, convoys uh, being the most, most important. So the, the, there are some factors here that lead into whether Germany could have been more successful earlier by launching a submarine campaign. I don't think they would have been because mm -hmm. they didn't have the boats to send out there until later in the war. Yeah, interesting. Dave, we'll go to you for a land power angle on the question. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't disagree with what my colleagues have said about sea power, but I, I would take a kind of land power angle to answering the question if the Germans should have used subs earlier in an unrestricted way. Because um, I think the Germans were clear that if they did go to unrestricted submarine warfare, it would bring in the Americans. And you're not going to do that lightly. You, you only want to do that if you absolutely have to. Uh, 
Uh, and I see the Germans as having exhausted all their other options. So in 1914, they tried to go west, and that didn't work. In 1915, they go east, and they take a lot of Russian territory, but Russia has lots of territory to spare. They don't get to a center of gravity, so that fails. In 1916, they try attrition to bleed the French out of the war, but they lose German soldiers as fast as they do French ones, so that's not going to work. Um, and then in 1916, uh, you said not only did attrition not work, but the Austrian Empire is running out of army. Um, the Russian offensive in 1916 basically wrecks what's left of the Habsburg army. And so the Germans are finding themselves kind of out of options. Um, and so in the beginning of 1917, when they decide to go a, to unrestricted submarine warfare, it's because they've run out of other choices. All of their land options seem to have not worked out for them. And so they're left looking for what else is there. Uh, and so I would see it as kind of exhausting the other options and now taking the gamble on unrestricted submarine warfare, that the gamble that they can win the war before the Americans come in. It doesn't work, um, but it's not necessarily crazy to try if nothing else seems to have worked. Yeah, so I wanna pull the thread a little bit on, on that, talking uh, from the, again, the German side of the, the equation. Um, the Germans don't get the results they expect in, in France. Schlieffen plan fails, deadlocks, but they have, some spectacular, one could argue, some spectacular success in the East, uh, what we colloquially call Tannenberg. I know it wasn't fought there, but, you know, the Germans call it Tannenberg. Smash two Russian armies, you know, rise of Hindenburg and Ludendorff for these, as these rock star uh, generals. Why can't they, they capitalize on that success, Dave? So at least at the beginning of the war, I mean, Tannenberg is an, an enormous defensive victory. Um, but it's worth thinking about the nature of the Schlieffen plan. The Germans more or less send seven armies west against France and leave one army in the east to stop the Russians. And so that one army does a really good job of stopping the Russians, but one army is not going to make any big advances on its own. Um, for that to happen, the Germans have to put serious force in the east. So that means that in 1914, they can stop the Russians, but they can't do very much on their own. After that, it's just a problem of, of force and space. Eastern Europe is really, really big. Um, and Russian centers of gravity are very far to the east. And so the Germans in World War I never get close to St. Petersburg or Moscow. Um, they can take lots of empty territory. Um, but uh, Falkenheim, the, the uh, German chief of staff for the first couple of years of the war, is very clear that you take Russian territory, you know, congratulations, but that doesn't get you anything because Russia's got territory to spare. And, uh, and so Germany in the East has a real problem of achieving decisive results, just given the geography. Mm -hmm. yeah. If I can jump in here, yeah, go ahead, John. John. Uh, you know, Germany had before the war two uh, war plans, deployment plans, one for deployment to the West, what is known as the Schlieffen plan, the, the great deployment plan West. But they also for many years kept up a great deployment plan East uh, and uh, they had this as an option. And even in 1914, while the Great Deployment Plan East against Russia had not been updated, uh, they still could have done that. And so one of the great uh, uh, counterfactuals, one of the great uh, uh, strategic choices is that in 1914, which way to go? Carry out the Schlieffen Plan, the Great Deployment Plan West, or do a Great Deployment Plan East uh, in which they would have deployed instead of one army, four armies to the east and kept five in the west against the, uh, against the French. And um, 
uh, in a book that I wrote about the deployment plan options that the Austrians and the Germans had, uh, they had uh, an alternative strategy here that uh, would have uh, bolstered Austria-Hungary, uh, would enable them to carry out uh, offensives in the east that would have thrown back uh, Russia. Uh, uh, and also the Germans were looking to have a, 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 an alliance with Sweden. And the Swedish general staff, by the way, was very interested in this. We talk about NATO enlargement today with Sweden coming in. But you can imagine an alternative war in which you have Sweden, Romania, the Ottoman Empire, Austria, Hungary, and Germany all deploying against Russia uh, in 1914. Uh, uh, Germany decides not to opt on that. And uh, as Dave rightly said, uh, the German uh, uh, chief of general staff, uh, Moltke, and then Falkenhayn, both, both said, no, war against Russia will only become protracted and be indecisive. Whereas knocking France out quickly uh, can lead to a, a decision in favor of Germany and support Germany's larger aims in Europe, which is a hegemony in Europe uh, in which France is weakened as well as Russia is weakened. Um, Dave has written a wonderful book, by the way, about the Eastern Front in the First World War. And the Eastern Front doesn't get as much attention as I think it deserves. Uh, because there, there, there are alternative strategies there for Germany and Austria-Hungary that might have suited them better than what they actually did in 1914. My, my favorite quote, and I can't remember whose lecture I, I saw it in, was that uh, Kaiser Wilhelm asks von Mulka the Younger, you know, can we turn the trains around, change the mobilization timelines? And you know, von Mulka, oh no, sire, there's no way possible. And then the Kaiser says, well, your uncle would have given me a different answer. <laughs> uh, by, by the way, in that regard, the man who had been uh, the uh, general in charge of the deployment plans of the railway section of the general German staff a few years before, a man by the name of Stobbs, after the war, when he read that story about Moltke saying it can't be done, he was infuriated because he took this as a slight on the honor of the general staff officers who were in charge of the railways. And he said, I, I could have turned the armies around. There, there was no problem there. And in fact, I argue in my book that there's a lot of options open to both Austria, Hungary and the Germans with regard to their deployment plans that they, they, they could have redeployed forces if they wanted to. But uh, so Moltke was, was not telling, and the Kaiser knew well too. The Kaiser said to him, go back to the war office and come up with a deployment plan. You know, and Moltke went back to the war office and put his head down and started crying. Uh, he, he was so upset by it all and said, I won't sign these new, this new orders for the deployment plan. I just won't sign them. A anyway, um, he was subsequently called back by the Kaiser and said, go ahead with the Schlieffen plan because we can't keep Britain neutral. So therefore, just go ahead and crush France. Go ahead. Wow, Jim, any any thoughts on this one? No, I think yeah, I think those guys were pretty comprehensive about this one. I, I think I will take a hard pass. Dave, did you have a, a follow on to that? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting counterfactual, um, and you know, so. Anytime you say that a, a strategy was a good decision or a bad decision, it's implicitly counterfactual. You're saying the other choice would have been worse or better. Um, so it's an interesting counterfactual. What happens if Germany goes east in 1914? And as I think, it, I, I think about it, I imagine 
let's say that the territory the Germans end up gaining in 1915, they gain in 1914. Um, does that appreciably change the outcome of the war? I mean, I think you'd still have the problem of how do you get to a Russian center of gravity when those centers of gravity are really, really far away? Um, and is, does France have the capability of moving into Western Germany if Western Germany is relatively less defended because of the troops that Germans are sending to the East? And so it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, you'd have to kind of game it out. Um, you, you certainly could. Um, and so, but it's not clear to me that in the end, we end up with something different than what we end up with in the sort of the track of history, which is deadlock in the West and Germany holding a lot of empty Russian territory in the East. Um, so I'm not sure that, that 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 outcome changes very much. But again, this is a, it didn't happen that way. We can't say for sure. But that's my my gut instinct is would things have actually looked that different? I I argued that um, if they had done that, Britain stays neutral because the liberal government in power at the time was very very much divided and didn't want to go to war. And it took the invasion of Belgium, but what the invasion of Belgium showed was that Germany was going for the knockout blow against France and was going to overturn the balance of power. And so you don't have Britain coming into the war in 1914 is more than likely. And so it becomes a much different war. Uh, but I, I, I agree with Dave that, uh, and this is why the German general staff didn't like the, the, the great deployment plan East was because it's not going to lead to a rapid end of the war. It will end to, in, in a protracted war of attrition on both East and Western fronts. But at least Brit Britain is in the war against, at least initially, um, in, in that different scenario. So for you know, all, I, go ahead, Jim. Oh, no, I was just gonna, I was just gonna make a more general point about counterfactuals. I mean, it's a, I think, as, as Dex Wilson likes to say, I think he said, probably said it on stage when he first lectured this uh, this term, but uh, I mean, the counterfactuals are heresy to historians. They, they want to tell the story of well, what did happen, unlike our historians here in the department who are a bunch of heretics, like, like these two guys here. <laughs> but uh, but the, I mean, the, key to, the key to using a counterfactual well is not to, is not to get into too far into all history. Don't, don't, don't speculate on what would have happened had General Lee gotten a shipment of AK-47s in 1864. I mean that's a, that's a, that's a variable that could not have been changed in any real really scenario. But but in this case, I mean, could could Germany have picked up one of its other war planes and executed it? That's a, I mean that's a, that's actually a very good counterfactual, and that and that lets you try to project what what the what the, uh, what the operational strategic effects of that uh, change in decision would have been. My sort of my stock my stock uh, my stock uh, one when I talk about this is why did Japan why didn't Japan stick with its game plan rigorously developed and, and uh, tested out during the interwar years. Why did they depart from that in 1941 and go after Pearl Harbor? Why not just to, just to keep that strategically defensive position, wear down the U.S. Pacific Fleet, and so forth? And you can you can you can project out and see how that would have worked out for Japan. So so you always use them as as John points out. That's what that's what strategic analysis is all is all about. Just be a little just be a little cautious about how you use them. So pulling the thread on counterfactuals a little bit here. Um, for all of the stuff we're talking about, you know, whether to go west, whether to go east, interestingly enough, by 1917, because of other historical events, internal factors, we'll say Russia collapses, right? Throws into revolution, you know, um, Lenin takes power, Tsar and his family are executed. Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is signed, huge, huge space just ceded to the German Empire. And at this point, we could, we could argue it's a key inflection point. 
Dave, do you think this is the culminating point of victory for the for the Germans, the, the part that which they could have maybe done something different to to, to keep, uh, you know, something that they had? That's a it's a really good question. Um, and it's interesting. There's, there's a, a, a kind of a little wave of literature now um, looking at opportunities for a negotiated settlement in 1916, early 1917. Um, when Woodrow Wilson is at the point of rather that before Woodrow Wilson convinces himself he has to enter the war when he's trying to broker a peace deal. Um, and certainly the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is a moment at which the Germans um, have a great deal of political capital to trade. Mm. There's a couple things I would say though that I think make it unlikely that that's a moment where the Germans could have made a deal. Um, and that is, this is always the problem, um, is that when you have a position of overwhelming advantage, and Clausewitz says you should use that overwhelming advantage and trade it for what you want, if you have a position of overwhelming advantage, why not just keep going for victory? I mean, that, that's sort of one natural response. The other is that Germany enjoys a position of overwhelming advantage over the Russians. But by the time it's clear that the Russians are absolutely positively out of the war and not fighting, the Americans are in. Um, so Russia has its first revolution when the Americans are not in. Very quickly after that, the Americans are in the war, and it's only by the end of 1917 that it's clear that the, the Russians are done. Um, and so by the time that Germany would be in a position to make a deal to trade for good conditions, the British and the French know the Americans are coming with a whole lot of fresh troops and a lot of money and a lot of equipment. Um, and so there's much less incentive for the British and the French to, to cut a deal, I think, at that point. Um, so it's an interesting possibility, but I, I think that the reasons why the British and the French saw no reason to, to cut a deal at that point, I think those are pretty strong. Mm -hmm. I guess you also still do have the problem, too, of what we talk about in the war termination, of course, theme of who enforces the peace. And yeah, incentive bargain. Um, so Jim, any thoughts on this one? I guess uh, just sort of a, sort of a one, one on your original question and one on what you just said. As far as the as, well, as far as the culminating point of victory, I mean, keep it. That's a, that's the point at which you have your maximum military advantage over your over your adversary. That you should be able to translate translate into bargaining leverage. But as but as Dave points out, you don't usually have everything you want out of the war when you're at that maximum point. So you so you have to you have to. And Clausewitz is very clear about this. It's hard to tell when you're at that point. Oftentimes you don't tell, see it until until in retrospect. So you're going to plunge ahead, and that's when you start standing into danger as you head towards the culminating point of the attack. So, I mean, so, so you can it's it's always fun it's always fun to try to, to chart these to, to chart these things out, draw draw a picture at different at different stages in a conflict. In this case, uh, late 1917 into 1918, when should the Germans have tried to broker a deal? Should they have done it in, in, in late 1917? Should they have done it uh, during after the failure of the of of, of the early spring offensives that year when should they when should they try to do it and when did they cross the culminating point of the attack beyond which you're you stand in dire peril because you are now the weaker adversary trapped deep within within your adversary's territory and you're a deep dude you better you better you better look look for ways out of that or at least uh, dig in and hope for the best so but yeah i would say i would say it was sometime in the spring of 18 germany should probably should have written off the whole thing or or is it possibly in like december of 14. Is that, you know, well, that's a that's a good point. I mean, it's a, oh, the other thing I was going to say is you, you talked about war termination. I used to be Mr. War Termination, and in, in this case, I, I, I would just make a very simple point. When you're talking about who's going to keep the peace, one of the key one of the key questions, one of our trinity of questions of war termination, 
you have to you, before you get in before you get into a conflict, you better figure out whether the value of the object or are you invested enough in the conflict that you're that the value of the object is going to is going to justify carrying over carrying over heavy efforts into the post-war era because if you don't guess what if nobody cares about the piece that you spent all this uh, the time and resources getting it's going to go away because because you get the feast the piece that you enforce if you if nobody enforces it well you get you get what happened after the after the first world war when nobody took ownership of of the results yeah uh john any any thoughts on this one yeah i um John, you mentioned 1914 as a potential time to negotiate initial offensives on all sides have failed to one degree or another. Uh, but uh, uh, all the great powers, as Dave said earlier, uh, they have, they're resilient. They can keep punching. Uh, no one feels defeated. Uh, Germany's armies, after all, are all in Belgium and France. Uh Russia has suffered defeats in the far uh, in in uh, East Prussia, but they've scored big victories over the Austrians in Galicia. So nobody feels defeated and thinks that a second round could lead to a decision. Um, 1916, the end of 1916, early 1917, however, is different. All the great powers have taken incredible punishment. Uh, the Battle of the Somme, Verdun, the Brusilov Offensive, failed Austrian offensives in Italy and failed Italian offenses against Austria-Hungary. Failures at the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, John, in Mesopotamia and also at the Dardanelles against, against uh, the Ottoman Empire. This is the time when uh, there should be negotiations. Uh, but instead, as we mentioned before, Germany decides to escalate the war and bring in the U.S. And at that point, I don't see much of a negotiation there. Why? Because Britain and France uh, are led by two leaders in David Lloyd George and uh, in 1917 by Clemenceau, George Clemenceau, who are committed to victory now that America is in the war. And Wilson is committed to victory he makes a decision to raise a large American army and send it overseas. I mean, talking about counterfactuals, there's nothing inevitable about that. The U.S. could have fought a more financial, naval, uh, industrial war supplying the allies. Uh, uh, instead, we decide to, we're going to send a big army over there. So uh, before America comes into the war, it's the real opportunity for peace. And Bettmann-Holweg in Germany is interested in exploring it. By the way, David Lloyd George, despite a public rhetoric of a knockout blow and fight to the finish, understands that if America doesn't come into the war, there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement. And so with his intimates, with his friends, he talks about what a deal might look like. And the deal that he thinks about is that Germany gets to keep territory in the east at Russia's expense uh, and Britain gets to keep territory in the Middle East at the Ottoman Empire's expense so that both Germany and Britain can say we've won in that we've expanded our empires. The sticking point is always what do you do with Alsace-Lorraine and can you get the Germans to evacuate France and Belgium? And he thinks he can get the Germans, Bettmann-Holweg at least, to evacuate France and Belgium, but he knows that the Germans will never give up on Alsace-Lorraine. So the question then is, can the French be compensated in some way for Alsace-Lorraine? And he's thinking, what if we give them Syria? 
will they uh, want to get out of the war? And when I, I read this in the archives, I was I started laughing in this very quiet archival room at the British Library, and, and I started laughing. And everybody looks around at you like, why is that man laughing? And I thought, well, of course the French aren't going to uh, like. Having said that, the French are suffering heavy losses, and there is a peace movement in France before Clemenceau takes over. So. Yeah. 1617 is the, the opportunity, but the Germans aren't interested. Uh, Bettmann-Holweg can over, overrule, as you said earlier, John, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, who were the rock stars, as you said, uh, and they are committed to support the admirals in this, as Dave said, this attempt where they don't see they have options. Bettmann-Holweg sees options, but the military leaders don't, no. and they have the power to convince the Kaiser to go ahead and bring America into the war. And then I think all bets are off until uh, the German army is defeated. Jim, we'll go to you for your action. Yeah, I was just gonna, I was just gonna add to, to what John and Dave were saying. I mean, it's, it's, it's always felt really bizarre. I mean, to, to, to read the commentaries, the debates about, among, among uh, political leaders and military leaders very late in the conflict after, after all sustaining all these losses, it feels like it's, it feels like something like something out of HP Lovecraft's weird fiction. It shouldn't happen, but but there's a bizarro Clausewitz uh, uh, rationality going on, whereby you've spent so much on the conflict in, in terms of magnitude, especially military lives, but also national resources and also duration. You you haven't gotten the short war you thought, so you've spent so much that you have to that you have to find war aims that justify it so it's a so the value of the object so the magnitude and the duration are driving the value of the object and which it was which is totally totally backwards and uh, again weird mm, interesting dave we'll go to you for your reaction yeah just a, a quick contemporary parallel i mean you know history never repeats itself but it, it rhymes mm -hmm. um there's a, a kind of an odd parallel here with the case of the ukraine war in which um, the Ukrainian government has made its position that it will settle for nothing less than full to territorial integrity of Ukraine, which mm. would include places like Crimea and to a lesser degree, the Donbass, which it's hard to imagine Russia ever giving up. Um, and so talk of a negotiated settlement has, uh, at this point at least, given the state of the two sides, um, hard to see room for a negoti negotiated settlement when the territorial desires of both sides are so incompatible. Um, and it gets back to this. It's a, it's a bit like the Alsace-Lorraine question, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you, you got to be very, got to be very, very careful with a public commitment, putting your prestige on the line of in front of your constituents, in front of the international community. I think Putin certainly did it going in, and I think Zelensky's done it as well. You see it over and over again. Negotiation specialists will tell you this is, I mean, this is a hard bargaining, bargaining tactic. I mean, you'll see the union negotiations and so forth, whereby whereby the the, the union leadership goes ahead and puts out a, a very harsh position but and, and thereby limits its ability to compromise and takes its way its own ability to compromise because they know that the union membership won't let them that's a that's a strong thing to do but it also but it also it also binds you and it also it also makes compromise virtually impossible very 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 uh, bad thing to do in my view as a, as a statesman or, a, or as a military leader mm. great i'm glad you shifted us to the contemporary uh, question here dave that's always usually where we uh where we end the podcast on. But John, I wanted to go for you for any key takeaways, lessons learned that we can use in the contemporary arena from, from this conflict. Well, uh, I think there are a number of, of parallels to think about. And again, we touched on at the very beginning, which is that one of the larger systemic forces that are leading toward conflict and 
when you see the rise of China today relative to the U.S., that uh, you see parallels to this earlier time of of uh, 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 Germany's rising power relative to Great Britain. Uh, so there are those parallels there. You see the rise of uh, Germany's naval power. You see the same thing in China. Um, the that that is really changing around the world balance of power. Um, President Xi's speech back at a fleet review, where China needs and has an urgent need for a navy. Kaiser Wilhelm said the same thing. So you see these. Uh, uh, challenges here to the existing global order by aspiring uh, great powers. So uh, you see some uh, parallels uh, uh, there as, as, as well. So uh, again, uh, the First World War, I think, is very rich in this regard. And also, there's the question at a more operational level that you see navies uh, at, um, at this time, the great surface fleet, uh, warships, uh, the buildup of those before the First World War, how vulnerable they were, though, to torpedoes and mines. And that was shown very early in the war in a number of instances where large surface ships were sunk by torpedoes and mines. And so it led to risk-averse behavior on the part of the admirals. So when we look at the island chains today uh, and the whole question of anti-access area denial strategies on the part of China or by us, that uh, uh, what role would surface, um, major surface combatants play uh, in a Western Pacific scenario? So there's a number of, of parallels to be drawn and also things that, that the First World War show uh, to get us to pause and think about uh, what a great power war looks like and how uh, Dave, I thought, made an excellent point, which is there's a lot of ruin in great powers, as, as Adam Smith said, uh, that they can keep fighting and hence wars between great powers are likely to become protracted. One, one final note is, is the crystal ball effect. Um, it's often said that if Kaiser Wilhelm had a crystal ball and when he looked into it, he saw that four years later, that he was going to be running away to Holland and be in exile and disgraced and his family, the Hohenzollerns would no longer be the monarchs in Germany, that he wouldn't have pressed the button in 1914. And I think there's something to that. He would have been more cautious and prudent. You know, today, one of the big differences is that we have a crystal ball and when we look into it, we see nuclear mushroom clouds. So there is, again, more inhibition today on the part, or there should be more inhibition on the part of leaders before taking the first step into war uh, in thinking about what role nuclear weapons will play. So we have to also think about differences as well as, as parallels. Great points. Dave, we'll go to you for your final thoughts. Yeah, I would just echo John's point um, in slightly different words that, that wars between big powers are a lot easier to start than they are to stop. Um, and the illusions of quick victory um, are more often than not exactly that they are illusions. And so maybe once in a while you get your quick, decisive victory, but more often than not, this is going to be a lot longer and more expensive than you thought it was going to be when you started it. Um, and people make choices. Um, there are structural problems, but people make choices to start wars. And I think uh, caution uh, is, is the watchword. Hmm. Great point. Jim? 
Yeah, I guess just two points. This is good. this first one is going to be kind of rambling, but we'll see if I can make something out of it. When China began its ascent to to great power, they, I mean, it was all about conveying to to fellow great powers and fellow Asians that uh, China's rise was going to be peaceful. We were going to have a peaceful rise to be to be a responsible stakeholder in the in the international order. They studied that they studied the history that we're studying this week with World War One, and they also studied the history of Bismarck's Germany of, of, of unified Germany starting in 1871. Bismarck Bismarck went out of his way to conciliate his his his, his neighbors uh, to show them that Germany was now a satiated power; it was no longer going to make demands on their territory, and, and, and he, he was noteworthy in his restraint until he was fired in 1890 by the Kaiser, who, as we know from from uh, from our studies uh, of World War One. Basically, marched there, marched the marched Europe over the precipice into war. So the message, the message, uh, the message, uh, or the message China rather tried to convey is: we're like Bismarck's Germany. We are not like the we are not like the Kaiser's Germany. I will say that that narrative has lost force. You don't hear that kind of thing coming out of Beijing anymore since the since the debut of uh, of uh, Xi Jinping almost ten years ago, November twenty twelve. You don't you don't you don't hear a lot of concern about trying to. Convince, convince, uh, convince uh, the United States, Asia, and so forth that China, that China is, is is going to be loath to use arms. So there's a big. I think, so I think they, that that gives that poses a lot of questions to us as we try to forecast uh, what China may do in the future. A little bit more operational point. I mean, as John pointed out, you're looking at a continental power trying to get out of, out to sea for for purposes that it deems worthwhile, namely commerce, uh, diplomacy, military affairs, what have you. And it's, it's facing off, off against an offshore maritime power that is using geography in concert with technology in order to impede that access. As John pointed out, we call it access in area denial. That's, that's, that's a term we project onto China, but that's what they've tried to do in order to assure their access to the Western Pacific. But it's also, it's also at the root of what we are thinking about, we and the Japanese are thinking about doing along the first island chain. Again, use, uh, waging expeditionary advanced base operations in order to close the straits, basically make that into a into a into a geographic and military barrier to Chinese maritime movements. So again, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of goodness in looking ba- back at this history when you're trying to forecast uh, forecast what's going to happen because they're, they're, these are by no means by no means is imperial Germany China, but there are a lot of rhymes there. Mm-hmm. Great points. Well, gentlemen, this has been an excellent discussion. Thank you for raising the professional discourse of, uh, of our officers and everyone watching. Thank you again for your time and thank you everyone for listening. We'll see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you, John. Thanks.